Greetings, brethren. Why are we here today? We've come from many areas of the world and gathered together. Our purpose is first to obey God, His instruction, to keep a commanded assembly. But what is God's purpose in your presence? Clearly, one of God's purposes is to teach us about what He is doing, His plan, and what lies ahead. In the book of Matthew, when Jesus Christ established the church of God, we find a foundation that had to do with recognizing His authority and, in fact, His true identity. In Matthew chapter 16, and in verse 13, we find where Christ asked His disciples, Who do men say that I am? It's interesting, each answer related to Jesus Christ being a religious leader. Most thought of him as a prophet. But Christ asked Peter, and with him the other disciples, Who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, verse 17 of Matthew chapter 16, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, not speaking of Peter, but literally of himself, because the word rock here, has to do with a much larger stone than the meaning of Peter's name, which was a smaller stone. But nevertheless, in the Bible, Peter was a part of the foundation of God. But he said, on this rock, the word is Patra, referring to Christ himself, says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you, that is his disciples, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Christ established the church. It was a very important new beginning in God's plan and His purpose. But in doing that, we find that a very short time after that, He gave His disciples a vision of the future. And you know, brethren, as God works in our life, that vision becomes extremely important in our understanding of the process of what God is doing to our success. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, we find it was six days after Jesus took, after this, that Jesus took Peter, James, and John his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So they were alone, but they were the leadership. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, or booths, dwelling places. One for you, 
one for Moses and one for Elijah. In this experience, they immediately, Peter's immediate reaction was to think of the practice and the keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles. And to this sermon, I want to bring out how that reaction, the understanding he had, and the things that we find in God's Word are very important to the process of what God is doing in our life, preparing us for His kingdom. It tells us then, while He was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. You know, in, in essence, it was a confirmation a very powerful confirmation and a looking into the future of what God literally had asked or Jesus had asked of the disciples in Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? The very Father in heaven confirmed, this is my beloved Son. That is the foundation of many of the things that take place during the feast. It's also a foundation of our spiritual growth. This looking ahead, that is a vision of, because that is what it is, and this is brought out later in the same chapter in verse 9, Christ made it plain. He said, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. This is the same vision and hope that was shared by God's servants of the Old Testament. Notice in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, a chapter that we refer to as a faith chapter, also reveals to us the focus of the faith of the patriarchs. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. As we read on in verse 12, is therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, Embrace them and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That God had literally called them in this life to a journey. That they would become sojourners or pilgrims. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. 
Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You know, it's interesting, when God began to work in the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that God's first instruction to him was to leave his homeland, that he would leave and literally sojourn as God led him to the land that he would give him as an inheritance. It's interesting also that God gave Abraham a foresight or an understanding that this would also happen to his descendants, his children. In Exodus chapter 15 and in verse 13, God revealed to Abraham Turn to the wrong chapter, or wrong book. Genesis 15, verse 13. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. So the very experience that Abraham was led through, God says the same will happen to your descendants. So they will be in a land that is not theirs, will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward. Then they shall come out with great possessions. So God was going to bring them out. And it's interesting scripturally that we find that foundation not only in Abraham, but also in the descendants. And we know that when God brought them out, he had a purpose. In Exodus chapter 6, as we go forward in the scripture, to the fulfillment of what God revealed to Abraham, in Exodus chapter 6 and starting in verse 3, says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, as God Almighty, I'm in chapter verse, yeah, chapter 6, verse 3. I've also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. And he goes on down and he says, And I heard the groanings of the children of Israel. Verse 6, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you from their outstretched arm and with great judgments. Notice then verse 7. I wanted to lead into this. Notice God's purpose. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The first thing God established with them was his identity. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the eternal. It's interesting the continuity of how God dealt with Abraham and then his descendants. We know that God said to them when he gave them the commandments, it starts with the same commandments that we are told in the New Testament 
that we are to follow and to obey. It starts in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Eternal your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It starts with a recognition of the identity and what God actually did in their lives. And in the New Testament, we see the very same format in terms of our life. And how God is dealing with us. In 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. The same individual that Jesus has asked. Who do you say that I am? And then literally revealed to them in a vision. The picture of God's kingdom. The resurrected servants of God. That they saw in a vision. And in that same vision, the confirmation of the Father. This is my beloved Son. We read then from Peter's inspiration given to him by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes to the brethren he served. In verse 9, He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so just as God had asked Abraham to leave his own land, and he took him as a sojourner, that's the same thing that he had done with the descendants of Abraham, when they went into and were in bondage in the land of Egypt, he brought them out to be his people, to worship him. When he made a covenant with them, he reminded them of that. That was the very first phrase of that covenant. In the New Testament, God says to us, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. So he goes on to give instruction for them in a spiritual life and in growing in God. In that instruction, he says something that's very helpful to us. Because as we journey out and as we literally are led by God, God becomes our shepherd. He guides us as his people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, as Peter concludes part of his thought here, he says, verse 25, But you were like sheep going astray, you ha- and but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so in this process, Peter understood and he clearly stated probably something he taught as he worked with God's people, those whom God called, that Jesus Christ, that God is our shepherd. It's interesting because a very, very popular psalm 
and one that we sing in the Church of God. In fact, we have more than one version of it that we sing, but it's very beautiful, is Psalm chapter 23. But that particular psalm centers around the understanding and the heart of David looking to God as a shepherd of his soul, that God was guiding him, that God was leading him as a shepherd would guide and lead a flock. In Psalm chapter 23, let's notice some of the words and the inspiration, because they certainly do inspire us and they comfort. We go through difficult times or we go through trials in life. If we understand the concept that Jesus Christ is indeed our shepherd, other places in the Bible, it speaks of the captain of our salvation. David wrote, Psalm chapter 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. So God guides, He leads us, He feeds us. And the concept of still waters is something we understand in our society, that still waters indicate calm. They indicate a lack of wind or storm. In fact, perhaps I date myself somewhat by saying this, but I remember a very popular song which back when I was much younger, and it was A Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And, of course, it was transversing through life and the song was about someone crossing over a bridge a safe way to go over troubled waters but David understood that God led him beside the still waters that he calmed the things of his life gave him purpose and direction he said he restores my soul he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake So God literally took on, as he called us out, the title, the responsibility of being the shepherd, the shepherd of our life, the shepherd of our souls. And that's all related to being called out. And God intervened in our life and whatever we may have been doing or whatever our interest and focus was to bring us into the body of people that he works with that is the church of God. It's also interesting because we keep the Feast of Tabernacles and celebrate it. We celebrate the rest of God. That is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ or the 1,000 year period. We look upon it and understand that it's the seventh day of the daily week. And so the Sabbath itself pictures the rest of God. But in God's instruction in the Old Testament, he gave them a land Sabbath. The instruction regarding that in Leviticus chapter 25 literally ties right back into the concept of being a sojourner. Let's notice in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 20. He had given them instruction regarding the land Sabbath. In verse 20 it says, And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year? Since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce, then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. 
Because really, if you don't plant and you don't gather, it doesn't affect you just that year. It also affects you the following spring. You have to wait until a time of harvest. Because we're really talking about an extended period. So God not only would bless them, he would bless them in abundance. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year. Until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. We don't really, unless you're involved in agriculture, tend to think of this cycle. But it took a great deal of faith. They had to step out in faith and trust in God that he would keep his promise. But notice in regard to this. It says, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners, notice this, with me. That they were God's strangers and sojourners in the land in which they dwell. And so, it ties into, in terms of practice, something we find where the Apostle Paul used and gave us that example, and that's an example of faith. We go back and look in Hebrews. We find that Hebrews chapter 11, which speaks of Abraham, it speaks of God's servants, the patriarchs, in which we commonly refer to as the faith chapter. Because that's where it starts. That's where the Apostle Paul started this thought. And then the example he used were those who followed and viewed themselves as sojourners or strangers on this earth. Notice Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And then he immediately goes into the example of God's servants who live by faith, who exercise faith, and who look forward to the kingdom of God. So it's interesting, the you might say the bigger picture of what God brought together, the Sabbath, the Feast of Tabernacles, which pictures God's millennial reign, the land Sabbath, and literally God's calling. Our individual calling, all of these come together to be God's people and to look to God, to identify Him as the shepherd of our soul. That He would guide us, He would direct us, He would prepare us for His kingdom. So we're here for commanded purpose. It is in obedience to God that we assemble, or if you're in your homes and you receive this as a recording in your home, that you're observing the Feast of Tabernacles. And by the way, if you are in your home and you're not able to attend, it's really important that you do keep the feast. Not that you just play a CD and listen to a sermon, but you drink in of, spiritually, the meaning of this feast. Now, certainly a very important part of that is the spiritual food that you do receive through the sermons 
But it's also very important that we go above and beyond that and that we get somewhat away from. You know, when God calls us out, He takes us completely away from our homes, from our daily life. And it's a time that we gather together, that we rejoice. But if you're not able to attend and you are home because of illness or other issues in your life, then it's important that you also keep the feast in the same spirit as if you were present. That you drink in of God's Word. That you focus on His promises. We know that when we look at faith and say, how do we grow in faith? The Bible is very straightforward about that. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 10, it reveals to us that we grow in faith by hearing God's Word. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so it comes if we drink in of the Scripture. And so it's a very appropriate time, literally, to read God's Word and specifically to read about His promises. Because what we're looking forward to is the fulfillment of those promises. We're looking forward to the things that the Bible tells us in prophecy. That is what it's going to be like and what is going to happen and how God's government is going to reign over man. And it's going to be a time of peace and joy and happiness. And so we look forward to something that we need to be reminded of, that we need to drink in of. And we certainly do that through the sermons, but we also need to be doing that on our own. In fact, it's a very good time to go through the Scripture and simply read what are the promises and what is the picture that God gives to us of the millennial reign of His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to touch just one passage and then go on to another part of what God is doing in preparing us through keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. In Micah chapter 4, and this is the type of, of material in the Scripture that we should be reading and going through and meditating upon. In Micah 4 verse 1, it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the eternal, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords and plowshares into spears, into pruning hooks, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And it goes on and talks and gives us a picture of an individual person, a tremendous peace, where they will have their own property and they will be able to sit in peace under a fig tree in the shade of that and not be afraid. That's part of God's promise. It's really not a part 
and has not been a part of this world for the vast majority of people who've lived on this planet. And so God has called us out. He separated us. He tells us that we are sojourners, that we are here for a temporary time. It's certainly true of all. Whether God calls a person or does not, life is temporary. But there's a difference in that when God has called us out, our vision, our focus, is not to take and gain everything we can from this life. It is to use this life. That this life literally becomes a time of preparation, a time when God works in our life and prepares us for His kingdom. A part of that preparation clearly is our individual conversion, our individual relationship with Jesus Christ. But we also do something during the Feast of Tabernacles that reveals to us something God is doing that we are a part of. And it's an important part of the process of preparing us, of helping us to be ready for the opportunity given to us in God's kingdom. That's symbolized by a booth. It's actually symbolized by the building of and what was used to construct a booth. Because in the practice of the Feast of Tabernacles, God's instruction was they were actually to build a temporary dwelling. Notice in Leviticus chapter 23, in Leviticus chapter 23, we find the instruction to observe the feast. That actually starts in verse 37, where God gives instruction, and it continues on verse 39. I would like to start where God specifically speaks about the specifics of observing the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 40, And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palms, palm tree, the boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of the brook. They were to take branches or boughs of the different trees that was a part of their environment. But they represented different areas or different qualities of the land that they possessed. A willow tree basically grows where there's a lot of water. It needs to be, and it's often near a brook or a stream or a lake. A tree that produces fruit is generally in very fertile soil. And then God speaks of other trees or a palm tree, which is more dry, which would be up perhaps on a slope or a drier area, more arid land. And so they assembled literally the trees that represented different qualities of what they were part of, and that is a part of the land that they possessed. From those various and variety of branches, they were then to build a booth. It says, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Verse 42, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. 
that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths. Notice here, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, so I am the Lord your God. So it goes back to why do we do this? It goes back to when God called us or separated us or brought us out. But it also tells us something that's very interesting, and that is that we become a part of or we have a dwelling place or we become a part of the house of God, and it has a makeup of a variety, not just ourselves. That is certainly brought out to us in the Scripture when the Bible brings out to us the picture of the church of God. Because Jesus Christ established the church. He gave his disciples a vision of the kingdom. Their reaction was to build a booth. They understood it was God's kingdom. And when you go back and you look in the scripture and you see the instruction, and God says the reason for this is to remember I brought you out. As God brought us out, as he became literally the shepherd of our soul, we become a part of a body. And that body is the body of the church of the of Jesus Christ and is described in the scripture as the church of God. It's extremely important. We have many people who feel that they don't need to be a part of a body. That they can be separated from and serve God independently. And certainly from a physical perspective, if we look at it only from our perspective, that certainly seems true. But if we look at it from what God tells us and what he instructs and the picture that we find in the scripture, we have to understand God's working with us, preparing us to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. He's preparing us for his kingdom. He's preparing us for his government. He's preparing us to be a part of his family. And in doing that, we're going to work together and interface with many other people. In fact, we're not only going to interface with those that are part of this present life that we may know that God has called. We're going to interface with generations of God's servants. And we're going to have to build bonds and learn to get together, work together and, and serve together. And so part of the lesson that is brought out, and it's actually represented in part by the variety that's in, within the booth itself, within the tabernacle, within the dwelling place that was constructed. It's a symbol of the variety and of the body, the various strengths and weaknesses of the church of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Bible speaks of this in terms of what is the church like? Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all all been made to drink into one spirit. You know, it's interesting. God had brought in his body, in a sense of an analogy, 
people from different parts of life. People who were, in a sense, well-fed, who had a great deal. They had water in abundance. He also brought in those who had a very rich soil and a heritage in their life, maybe strong families. But among the building of the booth were the palms that came from arid soil and perhaps were dry and struggled more for life. They did not have the same abundance. It says here, Jew or Greek, slave or free. And you read of the time in history that transpired during the Roman Empire. Slaves were not treated well. They were not necessarily abused. That was often dependent upon the master. But the general reality was they did not have all of the things we do today. And so they simply did not have the same kind of nutritious diet. They had a basic diet. They had very basic clothing. They often worked long hours. And they also often had very meager, if any, shelter. And the end result of that is that the indications we have is they simply did not live as long as most people. Not necessarily abused, but simply by the lack of the basic needs to sustain life. And yet, God called into the church of God those who were free and those who were slaves. It was a tremendous variety of people. But what were they to become? And have all been made to drink into one spirit. And so Paul goes on to explain, he says, For in fact the body is not one member, but many. For if the foot shall say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? Or if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, you know, you think about that. If the whole body were an eye, it would certainly be very ugly. And what would it be able to do of itself? That's part of the lesson of what God is doing in our life and keeping the feast. It's part of the reality of being in a temporary dwelling. We, you know, we generally don't build a booth. We gather together because we understand the spiritual message and the lessons are far more important as we keep God's feast. But there's something in the instruction that we sometimes overlook, and that is God is bringing us together of all walks of life, of a variety of strengths and weaknesses, to work together to be one body. So if, if the entire body were nigh, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. So God's putting together a people. He's working literally to establish a foundation. It tells us then in this context, it says if they were all one body, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. That's very important to understand. We can't really look at a human body and say, we don't need this variety. We don't need these different functions. 
We don't need, as the scripture goes on to speak of, our uncomely parts. No, they're vital. We need them. We understand that. We understand a process. It's very important what God is doing in our life. If we think we can separate ourselves from that or somehow be apart from that, then we're missing something that the Bible is very clear about and gives us instruction regarding. We have need. The things we learn through that process, we may not really and truly appreciate, at the time. We may not see the need. But spiritually, it's revealed to us. So let's read again verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Not every member of a body is strong. Not every member of the body of the church of God is necessarily strong. We're together, and it's together that we gain strength. In fact, those who are strong have a responsibility. It says, those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. And you know, when you bring materials together, each of them, for instance, the leaves and the the branches, that would be that of constructing a, a booth, a temporary dwelling, each of them contribute their strengths to that building. If you put together a building and all you used were, uh, let's say, the leaves of a fruit tree, you would not have the same kind of density or protection that you would have to taking the the subtle and bendable uh, limbs of a willow tree and filling in gaps and lacing them in. And the same thing could be said of the wider and stronger branches of a palm tree. They give shelter. Each of them serves a function. And by using them and combining them together, you gain strength. And they learn to depend upon each other and work together. And that's part of what God is doing in preparing us for his kingdom. He's living, literally giving us an opportunity to learn to work together, to support one another. Not that we're all strong. And not that we all are without fault or weakness because the reality is that's not true. All of us, even those who aren't strong, have weaknesses. All of us have need. God called us out. He made us His people. He's leading and guiding. But rather, He reveals to us an interaction that needs to be a part of of the process that we yield ourselves to, that we're a part of, and that we grow from in our spiritual life. So God's working with us, not only individually, but he is also working with us collectively. We understand that and we see that from the building of a booth. It helps us a great deal spiritually. Now the source of that growth, the leadership 
that is provided comes from Christ. I'd like to point out to you before we move on from 1 Corinthians 12, what is God's purpose in this? Verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, so that our presentable parts, verse 24, have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there would be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. That's pictured and is symbolized by the booth. The construction of it, dwelling within it, living within it. That pictures what God is going to do in the fulfillment of the promise of his kingdom. It's interesting in the Bible that we find in Zechariah 14, I'm not going to turn to it, I'm sure it will be read or you will read it during the feast, that all the nations will be represented at the feast site at the throne of God. That they all come in. And any that would be missing or that would separate themselves or that would be apart from the nations that God had established will not be pleasing to God. He, in fact, is actually going to punish them. And it will take a period of time, but they're going to come to see the need to come in to worship God with others. You might think in part, well, it would just be a rejection of God. But I think sometimes when we look around the world, we realize that in many ways it's not only a rejection of what someone believes, it's a rejection of other people. They will not get along. They will not allow others into their nation or into their land. And so it's multifaceted and God's going to resolve it. Now the solution is that we understand that Jesus Christ is the vine, that he is the one working in our lives. In John chapter 15, we look at a building or putting something together. Christ makes it clear here. John 15, verse 1. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If a branch doesn't bear fruit, it's it's not attached, it's dead. He removes that. It's a very dangerous position to be in. The best position, literally, is to be what? Close to the trunk, close and a part of that tree. We read in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much because we're attached that's why because we are a part of what God is doing we're a part of the body of Jesus Christ we're part of what the scripture clearly describes as this church of God and our head guiding us leading us is the shepherd of our soul 
You know, that's, that's a term not only Peter used and David used, it was also used by the Apostle Paul. When he talked about and explained in, in the book of Hebrews the issue of faith, it's only a couple of chapters later that he said, and I'll just point it out to you, you don't necessarily need to turn to it, but at the very end of the book of Hebrews, he again goes back to the fact that we have a great shepherd of our soul that we have leadership spiritually that guides us, that we lean upon, that we trust in. It's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete. And it goes on to describe. So this... This role of leadership, this concept of being called out, become the followers of God or His sheep, and then to be led by Him and guided by Him and attached to Him, not apart from Him, that is throughout the Scripture. It's also very much a part of our rejoicing, our keeping the feast, our being together, and fulfilling what God is doing in our spiritual life. We read in John chapter 14, where Christ said he is the true vine, he also tells us he's preparing for the future. In John chapter 14, he told his disciples, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, or it could be offices or dwelling places, There's many things to be done. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Not independently, but a part of a bigger picture, a part of something God is doing with all of the people he has called, the generations of his servants. He's going to bring them together. And we're going to work together. We're going to... Learn to be a team serving under Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. In Revelation chapter 21, and in verse 3, we see a picture of what that will eventually lead to because at this particular place in time, it's after the millennial reign of Christ, it's after the fulfillment of the holy days we observe, both the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day. And it speaks of, in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Those had passed away. And in verse 3 it says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. We become sojourners or pilgrims. And it's not about so much the millennium because that's also a part of a time of preparation. It's a time when God is preparing literally mankind for this time. That is the time of the new heavens and new earth. And so it says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. 
God called us out. That's what we read in 1 Peter, to be what? His people. A chosen generation. But sojourners and pilgrims in this present life says God Himself will be with them and be their God. And so we're looking to that time. And the things we're doing, the process we're going through, and the, and the keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles, all of that directs us to that period. It's interesting in 1 Peter chapter 1, as Peter wrote, and he certainly again, as I said earlier, was one of the disciples that Jesus included, as he said, you are Peter, and I'm the rock, and I will build my church. And then six days later, he took them out, and they saw a vision. They immediately thought of the Feast of Tabernacles. They immediately desired to build three booths. We find that Peter then wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's start in verse 1, because this theme or this concept was very much a part of the Apostle Peter's thoughts it was a part of what he understood God was doing, and he uses that very language as he addresses the churches of God that he writes to. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims. Notice that. The very first title he uses, the expression he uses, is to the pilgrims, to the sojourners, to those who are a part of what God is doing, establishing a kingdom. Our forefathers in America came to this country. We refer to them as the pilgrims. These were the pilgrims of the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, and goes through various parts of Asia where they had literally been called of God. Elect, so he says, pilgrims elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. These are other aspects of how God is working in our life that are outside the realm of this specific sermon, but they're a part of it. Says grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That same inheritance that Paul speaks of when he speaks of faith, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of our forefathers who confessed that they were strangers and that they were pilgrims on this earth, were kept by the power of God through faith. It takes faith. That's what God revealed in terms of even the land Sabbath. You're not going to eat for a year. Not only that one year, but you have to have literally God bless them with crops for three years because they had to eat of what God provided by His blessing. That is what sustained them. It's 
says, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. As we go through trials and difficulty, we're not perfect. God's working with us, preparing us, and sometimes that's a painful process, even within God's church. Not only the trials of this world, sometimes difficulties that we go through that are a part of being a part of the church of God. But it prepares us for God's kingdom. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, brethren, as we come before God to keep his feast, to rejoice and worship him, I think it's very, very helpful us to understand God also has a purpose of what he is doing. What we do is we come, we worship him, we rejoice, we learn more about his ways. But, brethren, in doing that is fulfilling the purpose of what God is doing in our lives. And that's preparing us as a people to be part of his family, to be a part of his kingdom, to, in fact, as Christ said, he's preparing a place for us within his house because it's a house that will bring peace and joy and abundance and happiness to mankind. God's preparing us literally to rule with him. And so it's important we not only see and understand our part, but we also understand, because we can be much more successful if we do, what God is doing in us in celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles.